From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, August 14th. I'm Marco Werman. Bombings killed dozens in Afghanistan, underscoring the recent surge in fighting there. U.S. troops are still in Afghanistan, but you probably won't hear much talk about the war from the presidential candidates. Most Americans don't really like Afghanistan. They don't like the fact that we're there. And so I don't think you're going to see either one of them really going out on a limb to support the war. And later, selling Cosmo in Singapore. It's, you know, this gorgeous, sexy cover and then this hideous little rectangle in bright yellow that says not suitable for the young. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's been a violent day in Afghanistan. Multiple suicide bombers hit different locations in the north and southwest, parts of the country that have been relatively peaceful until today. At least 46 people are reportedly dead and more than 130 others wounded. Most of the victims were civilians, including women and children, who were shopping for the festival, marking the end of Ramadan later this week. Joshua Faust studies Afghanistan and national security issues for the American Security Project in Washington, D.C. Joshua, what have you been hearing about uh, today's attacks? I mean, neither of these places, Nimruz and Kunduz, are particularly uh, Taliban hotspots. That's right. Uh, Nimruz in particular has never been known as a particularly insecure place. Part of the reasoning for this is that it's nestled right against the border with Iran and the presence nearby of the Iranian military and the Iranian border guards has kept a damper on most of the violence. Reportedly, one of the bombs there went off just outside the hospital where there's usually a large crowd of people waiting to receive treatment and that that's contributing to a lot of the casualties. In Kunduz, it's a little bit different. They've been dealing with increasing insecurity over the last several years. But compared to normal hotspots like either Khos province or Kandahar province, it's still been very quiet. And in that sense, people are also expressing shock and outrage at what's happened today. I mean, it's always hard to measure this kind of thing, but is is it your sense that things are getting worse there? Overall violence against civilians is down, according to a report that was released, I think, last week by the U.N. But today also represents one of the single worst days for civilian violence in the country. Uh, The death toll is almost certainly going to go up above 46 from the initial reports. And that just doesn't happen very often in Afghanistan. And I think it's going to have some kind of effect on people's perception. So there's a lot at stake in Afghanistan, to put it mildly. And yet here in this presidential election uh, that's coming up, uh, the two candidates have barely mentioned Afghanistan. Contrast that with four years ago when the candidates positions on Iraq and Afghanistan were central to their campaigns. That was before the economy went into a tailspin for sure. But what will it take to get Afghanistan on the campaign radar this time? I think over the last four years, we saw this transition of 
people thinking that Afghanistan was the good war and Iraq was the bad war. Mm. But the candidates, in particular Barack Obama, I don't think really understood the war that he was promoting when he was saying in 2008 and 2007 that we had to go into Afghanistan because this was the good war. What's happening now is both parties have sort of realized that Afghanistan is such a difficult, complex problem that the best course of action is minimizing American involvement and American deaths. And so there's this kind of unspoken uh, truce between both parties about what's going to be happening both over the next 18 months as official combat troops withdraw, and then also over the next 10 years as this training mission starts up that's supposed to continue to 2024, there's just not a lot of debate in any of the parties, explicitly in public or privately, about actually changing these policies because everyone just kind of wants it to go away. I mean, given the blood and treasure that's been uh, invested in Afghanistan so far, more than 10 years, I mean, don't the candidates have a certain responsibility to talk about it? They most certainly do. The problem, though, is that most Americans don't really like Afghanistan. They don't like the fact that we're there. The war itself is unpopular. And so talking about either maintaining the war or in some other way slowing down the withdrawal is not going to be very popular. And with the way the race is shaping up right now, both Romney and Obama are scrambling for every single little battleground voter that they can find. And so I don't think you're going to see either one of them really going out on a limb to support the war. And finally, Joshua, I mean, make the case for us why it's crucial that Afghanistan get on the campaign agenda. Right now, the United States is pledging billions and billions of dollars each year from now until 2024 to train and support the Afghan government and the Afghan army. I think it's appropriate for the American people to be asking their candidates running for office exactly what we're getting for all of that money and for all of those lives being put on the line. Joshua Faust, author of Afghanistan Journal Selections from Registan.net. He's a fellow with the American Security Project in Washington. Joshua, good to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. Whatever happens in the election, American troops and their international allies are likely to continue to come home as planned, and the Afghans will be left to face a resurgent Taliban. Abdul Wahid Wafa is executive director of the Afghan Center at Kabul University. Wafa says he's worried about what's going to happen. Actually, all Afghans are worried about the whole narrative of transition, not only security-wise, the suicide attacks, the dominance of Taliban in some areas, not all over Afghanistan, but besides that, the economy transition is more important for Afghanistan, especially when Afghanistan is completely dependent on aid. The economy of Afghans will, will collapse after the international security forces leave this country. Uh, You're convinced that the economy will collapse when the international security forces leave? The the problem is that in the last uh, two years, the international forces, especially the United States, and Afghan government is more focused on how to do the security transition. But what we are concerning more that thousands of jobs will be lost when these security bases, when these uh, foreign bases are leaving this country, and also thousands of investors will be in a kind of uncertain mood and will stop investing in this country. So just to recap, you are concerned about the security situation, but but not totally convinced that uh, once the uh, international forces leave, it would be a full-scale return to civil war. I'm convinced that we are completely different from the time of 91, 
We have a different society. We have uh, a lot of people now uh, interested on sending their kids to education. So Afghanistan will not go to a full scale of civil war. You, you do assume, Mr. Wafa, that the forces that currently support the government in Kabul will hang together once the international forces leave. But after the Soviets left in 1989, many groups deserted the government and joined the insurgency. Couldn't that happen again? Not only they scaled that in 91, those kind of desertion. But of course, we do have a vulnerable country based on ethnic balance. There are, uh, right now, currently, there are rivalries among the Afghan security forces, among our generals, but not the same way which happened in 91, that all of the generals and all of the security forces joined to, to, to different groups. Abdul Wahid Wafa, executive director of the Afghan Center at Kabul University. Thank you very much. Thank you. The social network Weibo is the closest thing that China has to Twitter. Weibo was launched three years ago today. It now has some 350 million users, and they sound off and share information in a way that's changing the relationship between Chinese people and their government. Here's the world's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magstead. To get a sense of the power of Weibo, consider the experience of a Shanghai graduate student named Wu Hong. He was fed up with food safety scandals in China, so he created a food safety blog in his dorm room in January. In April, he got 10,000 hits. In May, he got 5 million, because word of the blog had spread on Weibo. You know, nowadays a lot of people use Weibo as a main source of information, and information on Weibo can pass very, very fast. So now every day I update the newest news about food safety on my Weibo account. Weibo is like Twitter in that anyone can post public thoughts of 140 characters or fewer. But in China, each character is like a full word, so a posting can be more like a paragraph. The potential impact of Weibo was made clear last summer when a high-speed train crash killed 40 people just days after the expensive, high-profile project was rushed into service. Word of the crash first came when someone on the train posted on Weibo. As officials tried to cover up, comments on Weibo were scathing, leading to a safety review and a rethinking of the whole Chinese high-speed train program. This is unprecedented. Kaiser Guo is the director of corporate communications at Baidu.com, the leading Chinese search engine. There's never been a time in China's history where there has been a comparably large and impactful public sphere. It is now really driving, in many ways, the entire national dialogue. China's leaders seem not quite sure how they feel about that. On the one hand, Weibo gives them a window into public opinion they never really had before and lets at least some people blow off steam online rather than on the street. On the other hand, China's leaders are neither used to nor comfortable with public scrutiny, much less public ridicule. Perhaps no coincidence, then, that Weibo became mysteriously unavailable last week during the murder trial of Gu Kai Lai, the wife of disgraced and deposed Communist Party official Bo Xilai. The government's attempts to control Weibo include making Weibo providers delete sensitive comments and sometimes delete entire accounts. But prominent blogger Isaac Mao says none of this is changing the fact that the government must now deal with an increasingly vocal, informed, and demanding public. 
the current regime, I think, is trying to delay its uh, effect of uh, some disruptive changes. They tried, anyways, to slow down people's voices. Mao's own Weibo account was deleted recently after he used it to criticize China's space program as a waste of money. He's still posting on Twitter, an international site that Chinese censors can't touch. Chinese Weibo users can still repost his Twitter comments on Weibo, and they do. Mao says Weibo has become the battlefield between official voices and the voices of civil society. If that's true, says another Chinese blogger, Michael Anti. You don't need to bomb a battlefield. You should occupy that. That is, Anti says, the government wants to use Weibo to leak information, control discussion, and monitor potential troublemakers. He says that monitoring makes it unlikely that a mass movement, like what happened in Egypt, could spread in China through Weibo. You can't do from the very beginning, because even you put the words like "gather," the keywords. Directly send the warning to the local police station. Still, he says, Weibo users are creative about making end runs around controls, using homonyms and obscure literary references as code. If you are journalist to cover China, you really need to read some novels, some popular novels. Otherwise, you can't decode this culture of the Weibo. But interestingly, even a fair number of uncoded criticisms get through on Weibo. A Harvard study in June found that while censors do delete about 13% of China's social media content, they allow many negative comments to stand, as long as they don't spur social mobilization. Baidu's Kaiser Guo says social media companies, which are required to do their own censoring, have to balance between following the law and building their customer base. None of these internet companies labor under the illusion that people prefer censored search results. But at the same time, they are obliged to obey the law in China, and we are also sort of compelled to explore the elasticity of, of our boundaries. Many a Chinese Weibo user is doing the same, pushing out the boundaries, and in so doing, transforming the relationship between Chinese citizens and their government. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Beijing. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality healthcare to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at pih.org, and by the investment firm of Raymond James, wealth management, bank, and capital markets. Details on finding a local advisor at lifewellplanned.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is the world. There's a well-known story about Helen Gurley Brown, the longtime editor of Cosmopolitan magazine, who died yesterday at the age of 90. She kept a pillow in her office that said, "Good girls go to heaven, bad girls go everywhere." You could also say that about the magazine she made into an international brand. Cosmopolitan now has 64 editions around the world. Edith Zimmerman is editor of the website The Hairpin. She recently wrote a feature in the New York Times Magazine, "99 Ways to Be Naughty in Kazakhstan: How Cosmo Conquered the World." Zimmerman says the foreign editions of Cosmo she's read are remarkably true to the original. It's the same Cosmo brand. They make a big effort to, you know, keep it on brand everywhere. But certain things you just can't do elsewhere. Like、um, in Azerbaijan, you there's no sex before marriage. That's not discussed. So instead of let's say in in the U.S., you've got 
you know, when your dude is doing this or when your man is doing that, et cetera. Not your husband, your dude or your man. Right. It could be, you know, anything. Implying no marriage. Right. Or implying whatever it is. Right. Um, But in Azerbaijan, it has to be your husband. When they're talking about sex, they can't be as explicit about having sex. If you're not married, you you can't talk about it. So they they address it with peripheral stories, like what your sex dreams mean. And ultimately, it sounds like it it could be an educational device for for a lot of women around the globe. And you wrote that an editor at Cosmo India told you that when they started the magazine there in 96, there was this flood of letters from girls who wanted to know, can you really get pregnant from a kiss? That was in 96. So apparently some things have changed because of Cosmo. Yeah, there's a lot of places where there just aren't as many platforms to discuss sex and female health and gynecological issues. You know, here there's sex ed and there's TV and friends and older sisters and older whomevers. But in other places, there's just that information is taboo. It's not made available. And in some of these countries, Cosmo has been the only resource for a lot of people. You know, they pick it up, they pass it around. And it provides a much more valuable – I mean, it's valuable here, too, if, you know, women don't know these things. But it's an easily overlooked aspect of the magazine that is really – I mean, yes, on one hand, you're being pushed into the arms of this, you know, shampoo company that you probably don't need. But on the the opposite side of that page, if it's something about your body that you otherwise wouldn't learn for 10 years or something, you know, it just seems – it's such a worthy trade-off, I think. In countries like Indonesia that has a a large Muslim population, has that presented any particular challenges for Cosmopolitan? It pushes the envelope in every country that it's in, but each editor just has to know how far the envelope can be pushed. And in Indonesia, it's the only magazine that has sex in the headlines, and that's pretty scandalous, but they still do it. You mean the word sex? The the word sex, yeah, and that's bold. Mm. But, you know, it still exists and it's, you know, moving forward. So that's just kind of how like each edition is kind of pushing further and further what's okay and what's acceptable to talk about. And uh, the the, uh, edition of Cosmo in Singapore apparently has a warning on its cover. Uh, What does it say? It says not suitable for the young. It's, you know, this gorgeous, sexy cover and then this hideous little rectangle in bright yellow that says not suitable for the young, which is obviously more tantalizing than anything else that it could possibly say. And then the sexiest content, which is, you know, was very explicit just as it is here or in the UK or in Australia it was sealed in a little thing that you had to run your finger through. And on the outside, it says, phenomenal pleasure waiting for you inside. <laughs> Which, I mean, if it were just a regular Cosmo, I wouldn't care. But that was like, oh, my God, got to get this open. So I can't. It's sort of like a backfire if that's the rule where they have to. Oh, no, no. You have to keep your sexiest content under wraps. Now, the Middle East version of Cosmo is in English. It's not in Arabic. But apparently they've got a lot of different challenges as well that they have to address. Yeah, it's they have to tiptoe particularly lightly there because dating and premarital sex are in many countries in the Middle East punishable by law. But they find really creative ways and like the, what? Uh they found ways to feature topless men. And it wasn't, you know, super tricky. It was, you know, here are some guys. They would also have events for women. Because they couldn't say, here's where to go meet men, but they would have meetups sort of where here's where people can come out as a Cosmo get-together. I think they got into some hot water with with an article that suggested that a particular venue was a good place to meet single men because that would imply that they wanted to date. Did Helen Gurley Brown keep close tabs on on the non-U.S. Cosmopolitan editions? And are these international editions going to fare well without her? I think they will. This torch that she lit 
everyone's just carrying it forward, marching around the world with it. Um, there was this really neat story that the editor from the Kazakhstan edition told me that up until a couple years ago, Helen had sent her a typewritten note critiquing the magazine. And even though she couldn't read Russian, it was just, you know, this story was laid out this way, this story was laid out this way, here's you can do it better, this is what's gorgeous, you know. And it was really cool to just imagine going through and thinking like, okay, I, I can sense what's going on here, this seems good, this seems off. It just was really, it's, and to care so much for so many decades mm. is just like really infectious and neat. How do most of the editorial and publishing staff of Cosmo around the world regard Helen Gurley Brown? Reverence. Really? Yeah, delighted reverence. And is that because she essentially put them in this position that, you know, they're running a magazine or because of what she represents and what she has sort of provided women? I think she created this thing that really speaks to a lot of women, which is honest and candid discussions of sex and relationships with humor and realism that worked well. And then so, you know, it becomes popular in America and then it begins to spread around the world. And when it touches other countries and international editors are chosen, I think they just sense that they just get ignited by it. And it's fun and it's cool and it's exciting. And it was really neat to bring up like, oh, do you know, so what do you, you still, do you read Sex and the Single Girl? Like, yes. And I think. Sex and the Single Girl, Sex, Helen Gurley Brown's yeah, her, her famous first book, book the 60s, which, yeah. you know, it's old, but it's funny still. Mm. And I mean, parts of it haven't aged tremendously well. But yeah, international editors just immediately, the voice that she created was special and speaks to a lot of people. And it's the thing that's made it as big as it is, which is why there's been so few significant tweaks over the decades, I think. Edith Zimmerman, editor of the website The Hairpin. She also wrote the article in the New York Times magazine last week, 99 Ways to Be Naughty in Kazakhstan, How Cosmo Conquered the World. Edith, thanks for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. Bet you didn't know that the World Series gets underway this week. You don't have to wait till October for the Little League World Series, and this one really is a world championship. Teams from the U.S. as well as Panama, Japan, Kuwait, and this year for the first time Africa will compete in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. So for today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for the name of the Ugandan town that sent its top 11- and 12-year-old pitchers, shortstops, and outfielders. The town's located 30 miles or so east of Uganda's capital, Kampala. The town is a big sugar producer, and it's not too far from Lake Victoria. Problem is, it doesn't have much in the way of a baseball field for the kids, but that may change if the team does well at the World Series. We'll talk with the third baseman and get the answer later in the program. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, we meet the linguist who invented Dothraki. That's a language spoken on HBO's Game of Thrones. Its lexicon is expanding with each episode. If you want to greet somebody respectfully, you say, uh, Got that? Invented languages and their fictional purposes ahead. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. 
Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Nuevo Laredo is one of the most dangerous and complex fronts in Mexico's drug war. But just across the Rio Grande is Nuevo Laredo's sister city, Laredo, Texas. The two share deep historic, economic, and in many cases, family ties. Reporter Shannon Young traveled to Laredo, Texas, to see how the situation on the Mexican side of the river is affecting life there. Laredo, Texas, and Nuevo Laredo, south of the border, are often referred to as Los Dos Laredos, or the two Laredos. The main street of the historic Texas town runs right across International Bridge Number 1, over the Rio Grande, to become the central corridor of Nuevo Laredo's once buzzing commercial and nightlife district. Now business on both sides of the river is bleak. Around half of the small businesses in downtown Nuevo Laredo are closed. Frequent shootouts, the occasional grenade, and even car bombs have turned the Mexican border city into an urban war zone and left its economy in shambles. While the violence itself hasn't crossed the river into Laredo, Texas, the economic impacts are undeniable. This woman, a boutique manager in downtown Laredo, didn't want to give her name. She says business has nosedived since December, when crime across the border got out of control. Now we're really scared. Less than a year ago, I couldn't sit still for a minute because I was helping customers one after the other. Today, all this morning, I've only had two clients. The steep drop-off in commercial activity is evident throughout downtown Laredo, and the empty storefronts and the for-rent or closed-until-further-notice signs posted on front doors. Lots of these stores sold wholesale to Mexican retailers, so they depended on shoppers coming across the bridge. But extortion, arson, and kidnappings for ransom have forced many small business owners in Nuevo Laredo to shut their doors. Criminal activity, including highway robberies and carjackings in northern Mexico, have prompted shopkeepers from the interior to stay away from this part of the border and look elsewhere for their merchandise. These dangerous conditions have affected another important source of revenue for both Laredos, tourism. It's really hit us hard. Raul Perales manages La Posada, a historic hotel right on the Laredo, Texas riverfront. We used to average roughly 10, 15 tour buses a month. We don't get any anymore. Buses from the U.S. and northern Mexico used to regularly shuttle travelers back and forth. The downtown areas of the two sister cities are within walking distance of each other. Mexican tourists can visit the U.S. border region on relatively easy-to-obtain day passes to shop for items like electronics and brand-name clothing. The big attraction for Americans was the ability to cross over into Mexico for quick trips, eating, souvenirs, and nightlife. The Texas City's tourism director, Blasita Lopez, says she used to promote travel between the two Laredos, but not anymore. The traveler that used to come in that just wants to go, you know, go to the mercado, have a couple of margaritas, and then come back, we don't see any of that anymore. It's been about a year since we've had somebody that's come in and said, can you tell me about traveling into Nuevo Laredo? 
While the absence of tourists and proliferation of empty storefronts are the most visible signs of how the situation in Nuevo Laredo is affecting its Texan sister city, perhaps the most profound impact on Laredo residents is the abrupt change to the region's binational lifestyle. It does make us think twice about going across. I mean, I'm not afraid of going, but I just don't take my kids. My kids are 15. Laredo and Ana Lopez says what she misses most are the little things that were part of her family's routine. My kids used to go to the dentist, to the doctors. You know, if we can't, if it, we get sick on the weekends, we go across to, to the doctor because they're there 24-7. But at this point, it's kind of difficult to go at a certain time. I mean, we used to go a lot just to go eat on the little carts that they have for, for whatever, and, and, and it, we don't anymore. It's not that we're, we don't want to go, it's that we're just cautious now. Lopez says that when she does cross, she makes sure to be back before nightfall. Like many other Laredoans, Lopez has family on both sides of the river. So in addition to the economic impact, the violence and insecurity in Nuevo Laredo, along with ever more strict border policies, have separated many families who live literally within minutes of each other. For The World, I'm Shannon Young in Laredo, Texas. The International Little League World Series gets underway later this week in South Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Mexico, Uganda, Japan, Panama, Taipei, and Curacao are among the teams that have traveled the farthest to be there. So to answer our geo-quiz today, we're going to check in with an American volunteer coach, Richard Stanley. He's working with the Ugandan team. It's the first African Little League baseball team ever to make it to the World Series. They are from the city of Lugazi, which is about 40 miles due east of the main city, Kampala. So Lugazi is the answer to our geo-quiz. Richard Stanley, how is the team from Lugazi coming along? Uh, Well, some of the boys have played only for about four or five months. Some have played for a couple of years. But the problem is facilities lacking all over the country. So there's not really a baseball field that they played on other than a soccer field with some rocks on it and stuff like that. Not as smooth as what we have here in uh, Williamsport, right? but we're working on it. And they have a corporate sponsor in Uganda, I've read. That's pretty good. Somebody believes in them. We have uh, located one who originally we asked them for T-shirts, and we explained what Little League Baseball was about. And now they're committed to building them a field and even supposedly setting up batting cages. That's fantastic. So this is tremendous. Mr. Stanley, introduce us to uh, some of the players on the Ugandan team. Who's at the top of the batting order? We have our shortstop here, Tony. Uh, Hi, my name is Okelo Tony. Hello, Tony. Nice to meet you. My name is Marco. How are you? I'm fine. Tell me what you love about baseball. Why did you get involved in the game? Baseball. (laughs) The first time I saw it, I saw that it was something like it was a hard game, like Mm. hitting the ball. Some people also feared it. Like, on ground balls, they are hit, and then that increased my fear. It increased your fear, you said? Yeah. Yeah, you didn't want to get hit by one of those hard balls. That does hurt. Yeah, it does. And there was once a game that they were playing at home, and there was one fielder who was hit badly, and, whoa, even blood came out. So I was like, oh, yeah. baseball, I'm not going to play that game. But let me ask you this. The first time you connected that bat with a ball, what did that feel like? Uh, it felt very great. Like, whoa, I've hit a ball. Like, I've never done it so far. So the first time we were playing ball, we were using just uh, tea branches. We would make our own 
both from polythene bags. Plastic yeah, bags? Would, you know them as plastic bags, but we call them polythene bags like that. Okay, so you get a bunch of them, like just ball them up into a tight, tight wad. Yeah, sometimes even used bottles, plastic bottles, so that we could hit around. But as time went on, we just grew in the spot, so anyone can play and can reach where you want to as far as you do your best, like that. Hey, Tony, can I speak with fellow player Ronald real quick? Okay. I'm Ola Ronald. Hello, Ronald. What position do you play? I play third base. Third base. And catching ground balls was pretty hard, so it was challenging. But as time came by, yeah, I got used to catching ground balls. What's it going to take for you to crank out a home run uh, in the Little League World Series? Just make contact. (laughs) Just make a good, solid contact with your eyes looking at the bat hitting the ball. Yeah. This is your first time in the United States, I imagine, Ronald. It's true. It is my first time. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And also the people in America, they're also good. Well, Ronald, the best of luck in the uh, Little League World Series. So we wish uh, Uganda a victory, honestly. Uh, thank you. Can I speak with Richard Stanley one more time, please? Okay. There you go. Who does Uganda play first? Uganda plays Panama at 5 o'clock on Friday the 17th. What's your prognosis for Panama on Friday? Don't know. <laughs> they haven't seen us and we haven't seen them. So we're going to do our best. We're going to try and hit, we're going to try and field, and we're going to try and pitch. We're going to do our best to win. Every day that we practice, the kids get better and better. Tony, who you spoke to in one of our practices against live pitching, hit one over the fence. He was surprised that he ever did that before. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. So it's very hard to say who is better than who because everybody improves day by day. And we're going to see what happens. All we want to do is the kids have a good time. Volunteer coach Richard Stanley, he's working with the Ugandan team at the Little League World Series in South Williamsport, Pennsylvania. The best of luck to you and the Ugandan team, Richard. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. If it's August, this must be campaign season. President Obama is on the road in Iowa today, Mitt Romney stumping in Ohio. But wait, here's a third candidate in the race for the U.S. presidency, the entire nation of Canada, at least according to Chris Cannon and Brian Calvert. Their new book, America But Better, lays out the manifesto of the fictional Canada Party. As our continental BFF, Canada wants to save us from ourselves, legalizing marijuana, making hockey the national sport, and declaring war on war are just some of Canada's campaign promises. We'll build the Keystone Pipeline, but it will contain maple syrup. So if there's a spill, at least the animals will be tasty. We'll change the term job creators to job creationists and give them seven days to actually create some. Corporations will still be people, but if they can't provide a birth certificate, they will be legally obligated to care for your lawn. One gay couple will be allowed to marry for each straight couple that gets divorced. Congratulations, Nevada. You are now the gayest state in America. That was comedian Brian Calvert listing some of the campaign promises from the Canada Party. He and co-author Chris Cannon are in Vancouver. They wrote America, but better... Okay, so you guys want to legalize marijuana, you want to make hockey the national sport, and uh, declaring war on war. Those are some of your uh, campaign promises. What is the most urgent order of business for the Canada Party in the United States? Well, once we're elected, definitely the first thing will be full dental coverage for hockey players. That makes sense. That'll be uh, pressing. And then second, we'll probably turn around and invade ourselves uh, because we could use a good regime change up here as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
It's going to be a busy first term for sure. We want the same America we used to have but better. And that's why we call it America but better. It's not Canada being better than America. It's Canada and America coming together to make America the great country that, uh, that it has been. We believe the America's greatest days are ahead of it and we just want to help and get there. Okay, so what do you guys really appreciate about America that, that you think really needs to be underscored and strengthened? A lot of good beaches. Mm, warm, son. <laughs> yeah. Florida, California. Vacation spots. Yeah. We don't have a lot of that up here. So that's pretty much it. We, we want to uh, assume the presidency so we can get some condo time in Boca, I guess. Uh, really, we just uh, – we believe we have the same problems as America and we want to solve our problems and America's problems and uh, all come together as one great big continent and uh, work towards you know a better example of the species than, than we've been putting forth over the last decade. It's gotten kind of, uh, kind of ridiculous, which is why we attack the absurdity and the hypocrisy rather than siding with uh, the political parties. Now, you, you guys use humor as we can adequately hear, but I imagine there are quite a few Americans who may take offense at your critique of the political system here. What's been the reaction to America but better? Well, nobody wants to be on the receiving end of an intervention, um, and this isn't an invasion. It's an intervention, and uh, we just want to come and help America you know, fluff its pillows and <laughs> see over it some soup and let it just kind of rest a little bit and let us take the helm for a while. You know, There's been some drinking going on, and we want to take mm-hmm. the keys and uh, you know, get you home safe. So, Brian, I, I kind of get your motivation here. You're Canadian. Uh, Chris Cannon, though, you're an American, a former Marine. Is this a case of self-loathing? <laughs> no, it's the opposite. Uh, it's not self-loathing at all. Um, I love America. I dearly love America, and Brian does too. And I love Canada. Um, and this is why we, we see these commonalities, and we so, see so many people working towards uh, you know the betterment of both countries, and we want to support those people. I want to ask you about one big challenge, and that is uh, going metric. Uh, you know, the U.S. actually had a congressional order in the '70s to go metric, and as you can tell from our road signs, it hasn't happened. How will Canada get the job done? How will Canada make America go metric? Yeah. Um, well, we. I mean, you're the president. Book, let's, we, let's pretend, right? <laughs> let's pretend. Why not? All the presidents do. Um, well, we uh, have a chapter in our book called The Metric System, exactly 10 times more awesome than Imperial Unit. So we did in our chapter, we've created a number of new, um, a new, a, a number of new ways of measuring things that are familiar to the American people, uh, right. such you, you, as... Right, you've got base 10 units of measurement using elements of pop culture to get Americans used to this idea. So exactly. I, it's I, kind I'd of like a transition t- It's a transition yeah. period. Tell us about the pit ratio and the Jolie. Okay, uh, are we allowed to cuss here? Well, not really. Or should, okay, then I'm gonna, <laughs> I, might have to, yeah. I might have to skim a few things or beat myself. <laughs> um, there's, well, there's the pit ratio, which is uh, one pit indicates an equal proportion of looks to talent. Um, a larger pit number indicates handsome but inept. A smaller number <laughs> indicates talented but disfigured. And, of course, you have the, the metric equivalent. You have 1,000 millipits, which equals one pit, which equals 0.001 kilopits. Um, right. What was the and other the, one you wanted, Jolie? Jolie, the, uh, the partner. Yeah, going of after the, the power couple. I know. They, yeah, they, they, they scored big on over this, the power couple. I know. The Jolie is the volume of sex appeal generated by one straight woman to make another straight woman want to make out with her. All right. And, and what about the national anthem? Would it merge? Would you merge uh, O Canada with the Star Spangled Banner or would, would Brian Adams maybe write something? I personally want to go with peanut butter jelly time. Um, what do you think, Brian? <laughs> I like that. Maybe Brian Adams singing peanut butter jelly time? Yeah, I think Brian Adams definitely has to be in the mix. There's no doubt about that. Awesome. Comedians and co-authors Brian Calvert and Chris Cannon, their new book, America But Better, is out now. To see videos of the Canada Party Manifesto, come to our website, theworld.org. 
Chris and Brian, thank you so much. Thank no you problem. for having thank us. Thank you. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You might have heard stories, including on this show, about how many of the world's languages are going extinct. But as so many languages die away, a few new ones are being born. Patrick Cox is here. He's the world's language editor. And Patrick, what languages are we talking about, these new ones? Well, pretty much the only languages to emerge now are invented languages. They've been around for a while, as we will hear in a little bit. But there's a subset of those languages that have been invented for fictional purposes. You think of the elvish languages of J.R.R. Tolkien and, and The Hobbit mm. and Lord of the Rings. Um, and Tolkien himself, he was, he was a trained linguist. He based his invented languages very much on his observation of real live languages. So it was very much a serious pursuit. Right, as it is now for Hollywood. Yes, movies and television, they've very much taken up the mantle of, of inventing credible languages that have a whole range of grammatical rules and, and follow a, an internal logic. Well, Patrick, let's listen to this report from Saul Gonzalez of radio station KCRW in Santa Monica on the latest language created by Hollywood. <laughs> This is a language spoken by fierce warriors in a far-off land. But it's a language that's entirely invented by a really nice guy who lives in a studio apartment in Southern California. David Peterson, a UC Berkeley-trained linguist, is the creator of the Dothraki language for HBO's Game of Thrones. He works in the rarefied field of constructed languages. He and people like him don't just study languages, they make up new ones from scratch. Peterson's invented a dozen, as he showed me on his computer. Uh, these Those are, are like, all separate languages? Yeah, these are all languages I've created. So, so hold on, Valerian Tetric Tantils, am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, n- no, but, no, but you're being polite. Okay, uh, Skroth. Oh, yeah. There's, there's... Mbasa. Now, Peterson was creating his languages in relative obscurity when he heard that Hollywood had a gig for someone with his talents. There's a job to create a language for a television show. Anybody's interested, apply. The language was Dothraki, and the show was the HBO fantasy series Game of Thrones, adapted from the popular series of books. Starting from the book series, which had a handful of Dothraki phrases, Peterson went to work creating a 300-page book of vocabulary and grammar for the language. The Dothraki are, you know, a kind of a natural horse-riding, um, semi-barbarous people. And they were looking for a language that kind of embodied that aesthetic. So something that I think to the ear of an English speaker sounds a little gruff or rough, while at the same time sounding authentic. Peterson says people have been making up languages for centuries, often for philosophical or religious reasons. The first one that we have on record came in the 12th century, and that was a language called Lingua Ignota by Hildegard von Bingen. She was an abbess. She created these, what she called uh, Lingua Ignota, kind of uh, hidden letters, words that she felt were divinely inspired. Probably the best-known created language is Esperanto. It was invented in the 19th century as a way to bring about world peace by giving people a common international language. Later, Hollywood got into the Created Language Act as a way to bring greater authenticity to films and TV shows. 
Perhaps the most famous example is the invention of Klingon for the Star Trek movies. Star Trek itself had such a huge following that uh, the, the very notion that there could be a language in the films really kind of took off and got people excited. In the years since, languages have been created for films like Avatar, but because Dothraki is for a television series that could run for many seasons, it might end up having the widest vocabulary so far of any Hollywood language. Let's talk in the language. Could you give me a lesson? Could you give me some survival phrases? Well, well first we could start off very simply. Uh, if you want to greet somebody respectfully, you say, uh, maraun. Maraun? Maraun. And can we move to the insults without something that's so four-lettered? Without something that's four-lettered? Gosh, that's kind of tough. Uh, the word for somebody you don't respect is ifak, um, and that's I-F-A-K, and it means literally walker, so somebody who walks. They're kind of a horse-riding people. They respect people who ride horses well. If somebody's just, you know, a walker, they're clearly not somebody that is worthy of your attention. The first thing that whenever, whenever you're doing one of these languages for like a show or a TV show, the, the thing that they want to know is like, all right, what are the insults? How can you really, really insult somebody? And of course, you've got to come up with a whole bunch of different ones because, you know, there's a chance that they're not going to quite like the sound of the first one you come up with. So you've got to have options. But Peterson acknowledges not all people in the language creation community are happy with the Hollywood exposure. For example, there's a, a rather vocal minority who believes that we shouldn't have created languages in any movies or films because they see it as kind of a private activity, something that they do, something that's special to them. And the more people who know about it, the less special it is. That said, I think my approval rating is above 50% within the language creation community. And Peterson already has his next Hollywood gig lined up. He's creating two new languages for a coming series produced by Steven Spielberg for the Sci-Fi Network. For The World, I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. So Patrick Cox, who said Hollywood was averse to any language that isn't English. Full steam ahead with language production in Tinseltown, I guess. Yeah, and not just Hollywood, Marco. Bollywood appears to be getting in the act, too. There's, there's a big-budget movie out of India coming out at the end of this month. It's called Joker. It's, it's a comedy sci-fi. Uh, you get the idea with the subtitle. It's, it's sometimes being an alien is the only option. <laughs> uh, here's a little excerpt from the trailer. Now, Marco, the movie is in Hindi with lots of English words thrown in. But according to local reports, it also has some dialogue in an invented language called, I'll get the pronunciation of this wrong, Galaguzi. <laughs> and the twist here is that although there are aliens who feature in this movie, it's not the aliens who speak this invented language. It's, it's a group of people who live in an off-the-grid village. In, in India, presumably. In India. I mean, it, it's kind of odd. Why make up a language if you've got so many minority languages in, in, in India that uh, moviegoers probably wouldn't even recognize? Right. It, it might have just been easier from a research point of view and accuracy point of view just, just to make a language up. Okay, Patrick Cox, the world's language editor, thank you. And uh, we'll end the show today with some music from the Bollywood movie Joker, which uh, debuts in Indian theaters on August 31st. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Marco.
Music from the soon-to-be-released Bollywood movie Joker ends our show today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.